and welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast. On today's episode, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the data chapters of the Winters Group's new book, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. My name is Gabby Gonzalez, and I'm so excited to be here with founder and CEO of the Winters Group, Mary Frances Winters. Mary Frances, how are you checking in today? I'm checking in great. I'm so excited uh, for this conversation. Uh, I'm just feeling really, really good. So thank you for asking. And you're checking in how, Gabby, my co-host, how are you checking in? I am excited as usual. I'm very <laughs> excited just because I love the that we're going to be discussing data in depth today. And we have those two amazing chapters. Um, and I love that Thomer is here too to discuss and our special guest. So um, we're going to be talking about accountability through data with Pam Abner, um, who's the VP and Chief Diversity Operations Officer for Mount Sinai Health System, and then Thamra Subramanian, Equity Audit and Strategy Manager and contributing author to the book. Um, so very excited, very excited. <laughs> yeah, Gabby, and you are always excited. I love that about you. You, ha you have a really, really positive spirit. So that uh, makes it wonderful to work with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So shall we get started? Absolutely. Let's go ahead and dig in. We'll see how our guests are checking in today. Doing well. Excited to, happy to be here, honored to be here. And thank you for, for including us in this discussion, us being Mount Sinai Health System, our perspectives. Thank you. Thamra, how are you checking in? Your excitedness is just rubbing off on me, Gabby. I'm excited <laughs> now too. I was first just peaceful and chill, but now I'm excited. So... <laughs> Okay, great. Well, glad to glad to have you all here today. Um, these um, these episodes are, are really um, enlightening, and we know that um, they provide real, really some tactical ideas and ways to get at this issue of racial justice. And so, Pam Abner, um, we've known each other for a number of years now, and I just want you to start by telling us your story. You know, who are you? How did you get into this work? Um, what what brings you joy from it? What are you passionate about? Um, sure. Just tell us about you. Sure. So, you know, I, I, if I start to think about telling that story, um, it might take a long time because I've been in doing this work for a number of years, but I'll, I'll, I'll frame it as best I can. So the, the very early start, um, probably like many in healthcare, and I'll speak from the healthcare perspective, folks weren't really thinking about DE&I. Definitely it was more um, back in 2005, 2006, when I started, um, I was I was within human resources at a different organization, and it was really one of those things where um, the CEO at the time said we need somebody to focus on diversity, but it was really just about the numbers and leadership. And I shouldn't say just the, but about the representation of leaders in the organization. So uh, that that was kind of dropped in my, my way. I don't believe I think that people cared, but I don't think people understood the ramifications, what it really meant to the business. It was more satisfying kind of the, the call to how come we don't have more people of color at the table. That was fine. But I knew that once they gave me that little piece to start with, I said, well, what else is out there? And so I, on my own, kind of started looking, literally looking around the country to see what others were doing, other companies, other businesses around DE&I. So I went on my own learning journey and started just bringing forward all different aspects and thinking around DE&I just to expand it. So it wasn't just narrowly focused on um, representation. So if we fast forward more recently to where I am at Mount Sinai Health System, where I joined in 2013, the end of 2013, uh, by that point, I had really um, kind of coalesced or brought together all many pieces of diversity management best practices. So supplier diversity, 
thinking about education, mentoring, community engagement, many different pieces. And so we continue to build on that today at Mount Sinai Health System and the work that I do and lead. And, you know, I think today when we think about DEI, it's now everybody's thinking about it, right? You can't get away from it. it. A lot relates to what's going on in our communities, what's happening, you know, from a social justice basis, the outcry from, from people. Um, and we really, in organizations, they're not gonna succeed, they're not gonna get anywhere if they don't, if they don't bring this to, to the forefront. People are having difficulty doing that, but it's really, it, it's totally necessary. So now this has become my passion. So yes, it's my job, but it's also my passion. I can't tear myself away from it if I wanted to. Um, because and in my own personal learning, realizing how deeply I would say troubled systems are, um, and, and in terms of the need to address this this work, right, this body of work. So I'm fortunate. I always say I'm blessed to have been to have found my way here or have been placed here. I always say things happen for a reason, um, and, I, and I, you know I appreciate the opportunity to work with individuals such as Mary Francis and her team to help on this and, and bring just working with people across the country, wherever they may be, to really drive the, the, the tenets of DE&I and especially focusing on equity now to bring that forward. So that's kind of who I am in my journey. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and you, are, you're a New Yorker. I mean, I know you're in New York now. Uh <laughs> well, it's mixed, right? So I don't think that any of us necessarily are just considered one thing. I'm in the New York area, yes, but you know, born and raised in New England. So my part of me feels like I'm a New Englander but now in terms of um, where I want to be, yes, the, the greater New York area. But, and you know, I have a Caribbean background as well. So I, I can, it's a mix, right? Everyone's not just one thing. But yeah. right. Definitely have, I think when we first met uh, Mary Frances and started working together, you know, I was always kind of like, boom, boom. it's like, whoa, you know, you're Tom or Yeah, what is this woman? So maybe no, it was the New York thing, not the stereotype, but I was like, okay. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if that's a New York thing or if it's a me thing, quite frankly, because I think some things are just personality. I think I would still have the same energy, even if I were back in Massachusetts where I grew up. Yeah, well, I, I love I love your energy. I absolutely yeah. love your, your energy. And uh, it's been wonderful working with you. So when you hear this term racial justice, which, you know, is, is fairly it's not a new term per se, but it is a new term in terms of it gaining, um, you know, just gaining popularity, particularly since the George Floyd murder. So when you hear the term racial justice, what comes to mind for you? What does it mean for you? So I'm gonna answer that by saying some, answering a different, speaking on a different point first. I think that a lot of folks get hung up on all these definitions and what things mean and they're all, and it's all mixed and confused. So I, while I appreciate definitions and obviously they're needed in our language and our ability to communicate, um, I like to think of racial justice as really we just need to do, we need to recognize um, the harm that people have experienced, right? Bring that to the forefront. And I always speak of central, uh, centering the, those who are marginalized and understanding the trauma that they faced and continue to face on a daily basis. So um, many people don't understand that. So again, definitions aside, I just like to kind of get to the heart of the, the story instead of trying to put out just a word and defining it, right? What are we really talking about? We're really talking about individuals who, because of their background or, or their race, um, have, have endured, you know, uh, you know, centuries of trauma, mm -hmm. hasn't been recognized for whatever reason. And we can talk about that. I mean, we know the reason structurally why, why people were held back and others were able to advance. 
but really recognize that and start to address how do we how do we move forward, you know, make reparations or at least recognize that harm and stop the harm that that's continuing. So that's the way that I look at it. Great, thank you. That's exactly the way we look at it as well. And data is so important to that, right? Um, data, uh, and data is fraught with its own issues um, as well because mm -hmm. you know right now we're seeing um, uh, that there are people who are trying to um, squash the data, not 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 uh, share and not allow us to see what the, what the truth is. I know um, I wrote a chapter in the book called the, uh, the problem with DEIJ data, and sometimes it's because it's so compliance focused, right? It's and, and it doesn't look at the interactions and the interconnections of you know of the of uh, the data. Sometimes you don't get um, accurate data even from those who have been most um, marginalized because they're afraid, you know, to to speak up, and so. Um, there, there's just a lot of issues with the, with the data. And Thamara uh, wrote a chapter uh, with a, actually a four-step process to actually uncover um, uh, the roots of what we call dominant culture, you know, the dom dominant culture um, uh, perspective, and also to look at data from a racial equity lens. And you use that terminology as well. So Thamara, why don't you talk a little bit about, about your chapter and why you wrote it and how probably, and how it relates from a Healthcare. I know your chapter wasn't necessarily just around healthcare, but I know that you have that background. Yeah, thanks, Mary Frances. So, a lot of what my chapter stemmed from, and now thinking back to, I was thinking about when you were talking, Pam, about the beginnings of why I got passionate about this work and how my passion became my work. And right after college, I did AmeriCorps and I worked in a federally qualified healthcare center in Northwest Chicago. Um, my role was doing nutrition education, and we had this really, really old EMR system. In, in FQHCs, you kind of get the bare bones of everything, and you have to work with that. Acronyms, acronyms, Thamara. What is Federally it? Qualified Health Centers, <laughs> Thank <FQHC>. you. <laughs> um, and so because of that, and the electronic medical record is EMR, by the way. And because of that, a lot of the, I would get a lot of patients coming in for nutrition education, but none of what they were doing or um, any of the information that I collected, for example, for, they didn't have a lot of grocery stores nearby. They didn't have transportation to even get to the healthcare center. And none of this was actually being built. Um, and because of this, the federally qualified healthcare center was not getting as much money, was not being able to serve the population it was wanting to serve. And that's when I realized, hey, we have, this is one of the systemic issues we have, which is we're not really getting the full story of healthcare within our, our data systems and how we collect it. And we're also not valuing that data as important to um, what patients need. So that was one of my first introductions to, hmm, how can I do this and try to make a difference in this space regarding data and how we collect it? And so my chapter uh, shares a four-step process and using both qualitative and quantitative data, but really looking at not just what kind of data is collected, but how we collect it. So making sure that we are hearing from um, underrepresented communities, making sure we are not just hearing from, but also then analyzing it in a way to unpack those root causes of injustice. So I share a couple of different frameworks in the chapter as well on how to do that and then how to really synthesize a mixed method approach. I think oftentimes in the medical space, quantitative, so numerical data is prioritized. It gets funded more, the research gets funded more. 
And I hope to use this chapter as a way to kind of inspire people to think more about mixed methods um, and how that can be applicable and real. Because for me, at the end of the day, data points are so dehumanizing. Just a number for a person and their livelihood can be very um, dehumanizing and inactionable and just continues to perpetuate inequities. Um, so that's a bit about my chapter. Thank you, Thamra. Um, just everything you're saying so resonates. And it just makes me think back to just my own personal experience with using data in this work. To me, having the data was something that gave me confidence because it made me feel like, okay, I'm not just imagining these injustices. They're actually happening. I have the numbers to prove this um, or, you know, or the other data too. Um, now pivoting back to Pam here. Um, so what are you doing at Mount Sinai relative to data collection with like a justice-centered lens? Sure. So I, again, yeah. uh, thank you, Gabby. I'm going, I have to start by telling a story, right? And, this, and my take on data. So you're right. Organizations always use data, especially in healthcare hospitals, data reporting. So what I noted, and this again dates back a couple of years, right after the, the, the George Floyd murder, having discussions with some of our senior leadership about data. So oftentimes, reports would be done on whatever whatever the criterion, whatever the medical outcome, doesn't matter. But it would be aggregated data. This is what happened to this population, right, period. And the population was X, whatever that was. And I remember saying to them, but we need to be more discreet and look at what happens within groups. Because when you look at aggregate information, you're seeing everything as a whole. So we started um, to then use information to, as we say, drill down and break that out by race groups, race ethnicity, and also look at other factors as well, language, zip code, other factors, right? And then you start to see where variances may occur and where there are potential disparities. But backing up a bit and going back to where you, uh, where you were, Damara, in terms of data collection, to me, that is probably the most important thing is how you get that information. So again, short story, um, probably 2014, 2013, soon after I got to Mount Sinai, um, in conversation with staff who were frontline staff, business associates collecting data, right? Patient data as they came into the clinics or other parts of the organization. They were all people of color. I was having a conversation with them, happened to be around um, bias, right? Doing a session with them on unconscious bias. And just by chance, we kind of moved into this discussion of what did it feel like for them? Because they were all folks of color, frontline staff and how they collected patient data. So they revealed to me, and then I later revealed to the organization that we had no good, there were not good practices in place. So people, and this is not just true at Mount Sinai, I'm sure it happens, it happened or happens in most places. There was no importance given to how you collect the data. People were told, and this is actually codified in, in even some policies, right, that, 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 that as being acceptable from CMS or others in the past. You can just guess what someone's background is. You could look at someone, I could look at Mary Frances and say, well, I think she's black and just check that off. Um, if you didn't know, don't worry about it. So at that time, and again, this is not unique to our institution. Um, so at that time, there were vast numbers of what we call unknowns, right? No, no information, right? You go to the you go to the record, no information. So then, when you go forward and you're doing analyses, how are you then analyzing and getting any credible information when you have vast unknowns in terms of background? So we made a point, and this is again work that I harness, still do today, kind of own and brought forward at Mount Sinai is we did a wholesale change on how we collected, uh, how we collect uh, patient in information, self-reported, put a new process, procedures, literally 
went around to each hospital spoke, and I spoke to frontline staff, those who were at in those chairs receipts or on the phone collecting information. And, and my team today, uh, we now oversee still what we call the data integrity, right, for the institution. And that's for all aspects of anything clinical. Um, and then from that point, you then have the foundation where you can then start to do the analytics, right? Then you can start to work on all the other things where we want to see if there are variances, if we want to see what's going on. But the other important thing that I have to say, I can't get away from this. So we've actually set uh, and established a governance system for data. Right, again, work that my team and I have put together. Where one, it's the data collection, right? So staying on that always, right? And continually working with our staff and also our community. We went to our community and asked them, how, what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable about answering these questions, right? Because sometimes people are saying, why are you asking me about my background? What does that mean? So we did, a, we did a campaign very specifically targeted toward that with our community, brought folks in, uh, did patient focus groups, even put posters up in some of our ambulatory centers around this is why it's important for us to partner with you on this information. And then um, secondarily, which I also think is important, and we have the, the, the advantage of being an academic medical center, we engaged our researchers in our process so that there's one thing to have the data, but then how do you really look at it? So if individuals who are not uh, skilled in that, by the statisticians or other researchers, they may misinterpret and misuse data, not with any malice of forethought, but just because they don't know. So for instance, um, when we learned you know, during COVID even, that when you see those spikes and we saw you know, higher numbers of black or Latino people um, who, were, who were, had bad outcomes or mortality rates, people could start to think, well, there's something wrong with those people. They're black or they're Latino, therefore they're supposed to die, right? That, that, that can get very misinterpreted. So we did a lot of work again with our quality leaders, you know, kudos to, I, I do say to Mount Sinai for taking that on and, and saying, yep, we're gonna, we're gonna do that. We're gonna listen and we're gonna learn. Um, we brought the scientists to those clinicians, right? To say, this is how we use data. This is how you do your analyses. This is where we can determine if there's really something. And it's not, and race is not causal. That's one of my favorite phrases. It's not because, it's not because there's someone who's from a, you know, a, a person of color. Race is not causal, it's an indicator, but then we go back to looking at what could be causing these variances. And some of the things you mentioned, housing, education, food, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to bring all that together when you're, when you're talking about using data to advance health equity. So again, I can stay in this space for a long time and talk about the work that we're doing, but I really do think we have created, um, we, ac we actually have created a tool that we use internally between again, using the data that we have now. So we have good capture rates on, on patient background. We went from having like, when I say capture rate completeness, whether, whether that field of uh, background information was there or not. So we call that our data capture rate. And our goal is to always have that at around 95%. And again, our team constant, we constantly pull and look at information again across the system and see if we have any variations. And we go out and talk to folks about getting that better. Um, but then also then working with our clinical leads to say, now let's start, you start to think about the division that you run. Mary Frances, you know, you're running, you know, whatever clinical department. So let's, let's bring a lens of equity to that and start using data and create hypotheses around where, where we can start to be analytical. And then we help them get that data, draw some um, numbers to pull some numbers together and just start to look and see if there are any cases where we want to go deeper. So it's a lot of work, but that we've created, I would say like this hub for addressing bringing equity forward, bringing that equity lens forward and using data in a very consistent manner. So things are collected consistently across the system, right? 
because you have to have that consistency and that the data is applied in a consistent manner in our analytics. So that's my, I guess, short answer <laughs> in terms of how we're using data, but that's a huge passion of mine now because I think it's just so important. And I think we all know, you know, the Joint Commission now has stand, Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation has standards on how we use data. So they're bringing all that forward and we're already there, right? We've been doing this and I say to people, we started this back 2014, 2015, just getting into this. So we're in a good position now and our data is, is, is healthy, right? If I can say healthy, it's, it's in a good place. You know, we're, we're confident that our data is, is reliable. So we can use that and then make assumptions or draw, you know, help us to draw assumptions and do more, more digging. Yeah, both you and Thamra talked about, um, you know, data integrity, which is so important. And the other term I want to bring up is that you're interrogating the data and not just analyzing it, because it's one thing to analyze the data. But when but when you say now we're looking, you know, it's it's like um, it's not because people are black that these are, or Latino or, or yes. whatever yep. the group, that they have these. So that's where you get to the interrogation. Right. And mm -hmm. looking at the, the, the causal piece. And so that's one of the things that we're uh, we talk about in the book as, as well, um, that we haven't uh, in the past. Part of justice is making sure that we have the information, that we understand why we're not getting it. And the other reason that people may not um, give information is that they're they don't there's there's a trust. Right. There's there's a trust issue there, right? Why do you, like you said, man, why do you want this information? What are you going to do with it? Because we know that there is a history of, you know, in healthcare of treating people mm -hmm. of color poorly um, when they um, are in experiments and, and, and share data. So, so it's, it's more than just um, collecting the data. It's really understanding. And I love that you're trying to get to 95% of mm -hmm. uh, Capturing, yeah, but it's also how you ask the questions, right? So we were very careful. That's why we brought the voice of the community in. They helped us frame how we ask the question mm -hmm. and we listen to them, right? Because again, I think that's so important in doing this work. You have to get the perspective of others, right. and um, and and you know, there will always be people who are not comfortable. We all know that, right. but for the vast majority, um, we were able to help them, um, you know, understand, and we can we can we communicate that out. It's in our posters. It's in our forms, it's, it's, you know, but the language is more inviting in the way that we, the way that we frame the questions. Could you give us an example of that? I love the idea of the framing. You know, so how would you, um, how do you identify or, you know, we start off on our, the form that we use, you know, we're asking these questions because we want to work with you. We want to help identify um, areas where we can help provide services or improve the outcome of care. So, you know, we don't, we don't say, are you black? Are you white? We ask people, how do you, how would you, you know, how would you describe yourself? Tell us about your background. Tell it, you know, in those in that way. Um, a lot of times, we it's considered asking like more of an open-ended question versus mm -hmm. saying, you know, when you say to somebody, "Are you this or are you that?" Right? You ask, "How would you describe yourself?" Or what things are, you know, or how do you associate? Um, and, and that that play, that plays out in, in particular when we start to get into questions around uh, um, sexual orientation and gender identity, which is part of our data collection focus too. So it's not just race ethnicity. It's it's that language and what we call SOGI uh, data. So asking people about their partners and their background and how do they identify, but in a way that's not making them feel uncomfortable in a way that they can uh, respond to us. And so that came in, that, that was part of our design as well because we want those factors. Because again, we also look at uh, differences in, in care and outcomes um, among pop populations based on their sexual orientation and gender identity as well. There are many things, again, that factor into these analyses that you, where you wanna look at where they're equitable or not equitable practices taking place in an organization. And that goes back to Thomer, what you were saying um, about the mixed methods and the qualitative, you know, because it, it is 
asking that in an open-ended way is more of a qualitative way of asking than a quantitative, like check the box, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think like social determinants of health data is really hard to capture as just different categories because everyone has so many different yeah. life experiences and where <laughs> they live. And exactly as Pam, what you said, it's, it's so varied and why box people when you don't have to, um, especially exactly. when you're collecting this type of data. Yeah. And the other thing that's difficult, and I think anyone who does this work anywhere will note that just capturing, if we just go back to race ethnicity data, just the way that that has been organized in this country, you know, race as a, as a social construct, people don't describe themselves necessarily in, in the boxes, as you say, mm -hmm. Atamara, and that, that exists, but we have to work within the framework of, of what's in our society. Hopefully some of that will change over time. There is some pending legislation or talk about not um, having Latino and Hispanic as a as an ethnicity, but making it a race because it gets a little you know confusing. Mm -hmm. uh, you start off by saying you know typically the first question is are you um, Hispanic or Latino, and then what is your race? But if you have a conversation with, you know as a secondary question, but if you ask someone who is Hispanic or Latino what their race is, oftentimes they're like, I don't know because everyone it, it doesn't it doesn't really mm -hmm. add up that way. Right. That gets very confusing. But we we address that by asking the question separately as it's, you know, required. And this is the other tricky part. You know, we collect these data as we do at our institutions, but we also then have to report out on patient information to other bodies like CMS. So you have to work within the confines of other regulatory agencies. Otherwise they won't be able to get your data and, and use it. So it's, it's a little tricky. So that's why we have, we continue to keep the ethnicity question as we do. But when we do our reporting on outcomes, just internal reporting, we pull that in and treat it as a race so that we're capturing it. So otherwise they'd be left off, right? Because it's not considered as a race. So then you would kind of, you wouldn't have the, the Latino and Hispanic in your reports if you didn't pull that back in as a race field. So it's a lot of complex stuff. But I have to tell you, I love sitting with our uh, data reporting folks and, and doing the work and thinking around this, just to just to spend hours thinking about how do we how are we gonna do this? And actually, I, I was just speaking to one in particular, I won't say the person's name, but if he happens to ever listen to this, he'll know who I'm talking to. He knows it's him. Um, and Mary Francis, you know who it is. Um, that we spent hours really just talking about how are we going to use this information and the coding and, and then the, what I call the data geniuses go and figure it all out. But it, it's a lot to think about because you have to talk, you have our internal reporting, and then you have to report out to agencies and others mm -hmm. who require data to come in in a certain way. So and this is really complex. And <laughs> thank you for sharing the complexity. And so because it is so complex, what kind of resistance do you get? Or do you get resistance? Maybe I should ask it that way. Maybe you don't get any resistance. Well, I will tell you at the beginning, again, I, you know, you always like to tell a story. I like to tell a story of progress, right? So in the beginning, huge resistance. So things were said to me when I was literally running around saying to people, we've got to do something about all these unknowns and the fact that, you know, the, the story that I told earlier about our business associates being told, this is not really a priority for your work. So the resistance was folks saying, this again, years ago, oh, we don't have time to have our staff, you know, collect this, mm -hmm. oh, it's not that important. Mm -hmm. um, I remember saying to even uh, our, our data folks, we're gonna, um, we're gonna address this and start to do better. And people were like, there's no way, that's all this stuff is, there's just too much information that's missing. How can you even address that? So I, I, I will call that resistance. And I had to really, really personally uh, fight um, a lot to, to get there. And I, I did a, <laughs> to do a lot of things that were really off the radar. Um, to, to advance this focus for the organization, so that was early resistance. Now, I will say no. I don't. I don't have. Res we don't. We don't have resistance in the system. 
it's people are appreciative that we have gone this route and that we are in a, in a much better state. Um, resistance in general around the work that we do, or you meant just around, I just want to make sure I'm answering your question, around the data, or you just mean in general around racial justice? In, in general, too. Why don't you share a little in bit about general, that? In general, I think that if we're talking just racial justice, why are we focusing on this? Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I'll, I think that there are enough people who understand now why we're doing it, but I also believe that there are enough people, there's still a lot of people who haven't engaged in the learning to understand, because I, I just did a, a session with some individuals at one of our hospitals a few days ago, and I could just see in folks' eyes when I talked about trauma and harm and the you know, need for racial justice that people just didn't even think about it. So by not thinking about it, mm -hmm. to me, that's, a re that's resistance, right? By not even going there to, to bring it into your scope and your thinking. So, you know, no one's like writing notes and saying, go away, I'm not going to do this. But as you know, and we talk, we say this all the time, by doing nothing, you're still upholding all those racial inequities, right? Mm -hmm. And you're upholding those structures. So I think um, the resistance is getting people kind of off the dime to speak and say, you know, you got to you gotta come meet us in this party and start doing something. So that still exists. We're, we definitely have made inroads. The organization as, as a, at large, absolutely, our leadership are on board. I mean, and Mary Frances works with us. That's the work that she does with us, our senior, most senior, most leaders. Um, they're, they're in, they're doing the work, they're doing the learning, they're, they're moving their teams, but you know, we're a huge organization with 42,000 people, or probably more than that now. And when you look at that, all 42,000 are not in the same place in understanding. And there will always be some, even though our, my dream, and I think the dream of some of the other executives, we're going to set the, the culture in the, in the course by this is, this is who we are and this is what we mean. For those who are the outliers and don't want to come play, might not be, at some point, this might not be the place for you. Mm -hmm. But we have to make the culture such that mm -hmm. this is our, our always focus. And, and now, you know, by, by ele elevating equity as a value in the organization, most presentations, discussions, work, et cetera, one has to demonstrate where, where's your equity lens. It has to be in there. Mm -hmm. And I always say when I, when I do my work and when I speak, I say you can't get to equity without addressing racism. So I bring those two together. So there's no way you're going to get there if you don't, have your, if you don't bring this anti-racist thing to, it, to, to, to the forefront. It's not going to happen. Oh, such great points about resistance and just the way, different ways of thinking about what constitutes resistance. Um, mm -hmm. That makes me think of Thomer in your, in your experience. Uh, what are your, do you have any thoughts on using data to address resistance? It's really interesting because I think resistance shows up in different areas of data. So there's resistance to the data collection process itself. There's resistance to the findings. <laughs> itself and then there's resistance to implementing the findings. And I think we run into all of those aspects um, quite a bit at different capacities, no matter where you work. Um, mm -hmm. I think for me though, navigating that resistance comes kind of twofold with uh, really questioning when people ask a question, for example. So if I'm sharing some key findings and someone's asking me a question about it, questions fall into buckets of curiosity like, oh, I'm genuinely curious about this. I would like to learn more. Or there's the questions that are skepticism that are, I am questioning you because I don't think this is real. Yeah. And I think differentiating that as, um, as a DEI practitioner in my head has been very helpful to better engaging and getting to know um, what people need to manage that type of resistance and also calling that out when people share that. I think 
sometimes we let a lot of people get away with asking questions when they're just questioning instead of asking for curiosity, but then really engaging with those people who are asking things out of curiosity to help them learn more, because that also is a big aspect of it too. Um, and then I think, and one other aspect I've been thinking about more about navigating resistance is that openness to sharing data. I know Pam just talked about this as well, but a lot of times people don't want to provide information or do an interview or do a listening session because they've maybe shared these things before and nothing has happened. So being more transparent as organizations on what that data is, um, is super important, I think, for sustainability to co continue to collect that consistent data long-term. So those are two aspects, but yes, I think resistance can come at any, any stage of the data process. Absolutely. Yeah, Thamara is speaking of some of the um, equity audits that the Winters Group um, conducts. So we, we do conduct quite a few equity audits. Um, we're not doing that for, make it clear, we're not doing that for Mount Sinai Health System, but she's speaking to other clients where we're collecting data. And um, sometimes um, they don't even have the, the data that we are, we're asking for, mm -hmm. basic data, like basic data, like your promotion rates. Um, and they're saying, I just was in a situation yesterday where they're saying, um, we until this year, <clears throat> never collected data on, on promotions. Well, how are you going to look at equity? Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the lack of upward mobility. How are you going to how are you going to look if you uh, haven't even collected the data? So the resistance that's really a great way, Thomer, that you've uh, outlined at those how that resistance can uh, can show up uh, differently. Mary Frances, I just want to add to that. You know, and and looking at data sometimes around representation, right, in, in the organization. The, the resistance could be that people don't want the story to be told where they're not, where things aren't happening as they should mm -hmm. be as well, right? So there's that little right. bit of right. not people not necessarily being ready to deal with that reality of where, right. where the problems exist, right. and we see that. Well, you know what? I even had a lawyer one time say that to me. They were resisting actually even doing an audit, and they said, yeah, because if we find things that are wrong, then we're going to have to fix them. Exactly. And I was like, exactly. yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that's, that's a really important point. And that's why some people don't want to have reports on information. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. That I've heard that as well many times. Yeah. For a number, yeah, a number of reasons. Um, yeah. risk, risk mitigation, right? I mean, yeah. right? We want to mitigate. So we don't know it, you know. Um, yeah, we didn't know we had this as, a, as an issue. Because when you right. know it, you have, to, you have to do something about it. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's, that, is a, that is a level of resistance we still deal with. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. And as, you, as I can um, see, and I think all of you um, who are listening and watching us can see, this work can be, it can be tiring. It can be fatiguing. I actually wrote a book called Black Fatigue. It can be fatiguing. So Pam, what do you do yes. to fill your cup? <laughs> what do you do to manage um, the... Um, I don't want to even use the word stress, but to, to manage the complexity of the work and how it could land on us emotionally. Yeah, that, that's a tough one because some days are much, are, are very difficult. So kind of stepping back, like literally just stepping away, going outside, going for a walk, but having, um, making sure I, I spend time just away from it all, whether that's like literally going somewhere and leaving. And then the other thing is, having someone to, to kind of vent to. So there are certain individuals and they would know who they are if they're listening. Mary Frances is one of them. Um, 
who some days it's like, okay, we have to talk about this. And it's like, it's more like a venting, screaming session, not screaming, but just that whatever that emotional vent is. I mean, that's helpful um, and centering. Also, probably a few days a week, at least doing meditation in the morning. There's a group meditation thing that we have at, at Mount Sinai. A few of us get together. That really is helpful, just early morning meditation. And then just, I always have just in my own life exercise, right? Whether it's yoga, biking, whatever, whatever, Pilates, just as often as possible. That really helps because it takes you away. And, you know, reading, <laughs> when we do readings on this work, it's heavy. Like most of the books, like probably the same thing, all this heavy, heavy, heavy duty, deep, can be depressing reading on, on this topic. So sometimes just reading something completely mindless also helps. <laughs> you know, just a regular old, you know, crazy love story book or something, right. whatever it is, it's not so deep because it, it is, it, some days it becomes very heavy. Yeah, Fabri, I think you, you're a big reader as well, right? Yes, I was gonna say, I also read a lot of not non or nonfiction and just very like air in the head. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I have some friends who are trying to get me into their like historical romance book club. And I'm like, guys, I don't do that. And they're really trying to get me to do that. I'm more of a true crime person. I love a good murder mystery um, or like true crime TV. But yeah, I think taking care of myself comes in those different avenues as well, Pam, a little bit of outdoors, um, people I can talk to, um, yeah. my partner's in medicine. So he has his own can of things <laughs> that he'll bring home and I have my own can. So sometimes it's a lot and our dog yells at us because we're too loud. Um, <laughs> But definitely just spending time with my friends and family um, and just being able to like reground myself and also reflect on my gratitude for being able to do this work as well, yes. um, which I do not take lightly. I think it's such a privilege to be able to be in these spaces. 100%. I mean, it has been such a privilege to be here with, with all of you talking about this. I can't believe what insight we were able to get in just what almost 40 minutes um just the specific examples and the specific actionable actionable advice that people can can take and, and start using now so thank you for sharing that uh, so thank you pam thank you thamra thank you to our listeners mary francis a few more words on, on today's episode just thank you thank you thank you and until next time continue to reimagine racial justice at work thank you i was going to clap for you <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.